Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. to look at Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1 down to verse 8. In the chapter 12 uh, of Matthew, Jesus is coming under sustained attack from the Pharisees. Let's remember for a moment who the Pharisees are. These are the disciples of a false religion. Don't be thinking that the Pharisees are the Hebrews of the Old Testament. They're not. These are the people who believe and teach that you can achieve salvation by the law, by doing works, that you can get into God's favour by keeping the law and pleasing him through the things that you do, by your own works, by keeping the law. The Apostle Paul, who had been among their number at one time, uh, teaches us throughout his writings that no one can keep the law, that there is none who is righteous, not one, that we are all lawbreakers, that the purpose of the law is to point us to Christ, to remind us that we cannot keep it, to make us see our deficiency in our works. To recognize that all of our righteousness, all of our good works is filthy rags before the Lord. To make us flee to Christ, who is the only one who ever perfectly kept the law. No other man has done that. And that's why Jesus had to die. Because we could not get to heaven any other way. Because the broken law condemns us when we stand before God. That's why we must rest in him, in his atoning work at the cross, where he took all of our sin and paid the fine that we owed because of the broken law. But the Pharisees don't believe that. The Pharisees are all about works righteousness. And right throughout this chapter, chapter 12, the Pharisees are following Jesus and his disciples. One commentator that I read through the week describes them here as having the persistence and the tenacity of a private investigator, a private detective, not letting go. I thought a more apt description would be as... uh, a paparazzi photographer who simply will never let go of their quarry. Everywhere he goes, they follow. Every word he says is critically examined. Every action is scrutinized, put under their microscope, so that they can find charges 
to lay against him, which they will use later on in evidence to take him before the council and eventually to the cross. And so they're watching. Think how tenacious they are in their work. It's the Sabbath day. And Jesus is walking through a field of grain. He's there, and he's with his disciples, and they're walking through a field. And the Pharisees are following them. How strange is that in and of itself? What are these people doing? Why are they so keen to listen to the words of Jesus, to watch the actions of him and his disciples, that they would follow him on the Sabbath day through a field. And yet there they are. Here it is in the scriptures. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were unhungered, began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. And so they're looking for something to accuse him of. Now these grain fields, they're laid out in long strips. Long strips of crops laid out. And between the fields are paths. Long, narrow paths. And I suppose in our day and age, we would call those paths a right of way. A right of passage. Public access. Footpaths. And you could walk along them unhindered, nothing to stop any member of the public walking along the path. And as you walked along the path, the crops would be on each side of the path. You could just reach out your hand and touch them. When you think about what the disciples did, the first thought that came to my mind is, well, why did the Pharisees not accuse them of theft? After all, in our country, in this age in which we live, if we were to walk into a farmer's field and start helping ourselves to the crop, we might be in difficulties. I remember as a young boy, one of the great delights of living where I lived in those days was that there was an old farm. It had been built on its land, had been used for housing development, but it still had an orchard in its property. An orchard with a huge uh, hedge around it. And as young boys, we thought the greatest thing was to get through that hedge and to get into the orchard and to help ourselves to a handful and maybe a pocketful of apples. The farmer didn't agree. Many a time we got chased. Many's a time the dog came down, we just got through the hedge and no more. Many's a time the farmer, or ex-farmer as it was in this day, would have been down round our doors complaining to our parents that we were back in the orchard. It wasn't permitted. Weren't allowed to help yourself to other people's crop. But in Israel that's not the case. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25 We're told that this activity is perfectly legal. It says there, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle 
on your neighbor's grain. There you are. Quite legal what they were doing. And so the Pharisees who are following behind and they're watching everything and they're looking for some accusation to level against the Savior and they come up with it. It's not theft. It's working on the Sabbath. So I want to look at three wee things. The charge here that they led. The witnesses that Jesus called... And then finally, how he brings the case to a conclusion by a verdict that points to himself. The charge is laid here. Uh, The Pharisees, in verse 2, the Pharisees saw it and they said unto him, Behold thy disciples, do that which is not lawful to do, Upon the Sabbath day. Now, a minute ago, we read together from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Where it tells us, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thy labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thy, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor the stranger within thy gates. There is a very clear commandment. On the Sabbath day we are not to work. That is the essence of the Sabbath. And Moses, writing under the inspiration of God, being given the commandments directly by God in Exodus 20, lays the foundation for that. In verse 11, he says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sun, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So what was the point of the Sabbath? It was to enable the children of Israel to rest in the Lord. Every other day of the week, They were to work for their living. They were to earn their bread. But on that day they were to stop, for it was that day that the Lord ceased working at the time of creation. And they were to rest on that day, to rest from their labors. And of course that was pointing forward to a greater rest, we read in Hebrews. A time when we will be resting with the Lord forever. The restriction, the simple command, is that on the Lord's day, you don't work. What were the disciples doing? They were plucking grain. They were stripping it. They were cooking a meal. I likened this to peeling a banana earlier on today. If you, were, if you go back home and look in your fruit bowl, and I'm sure somewhere in your fruit bowl you'll have a lovely bunch of bananas. And what you do is when you go to eat a banana, you take up the bunch and you pluck it off, the banana that you want, your chosen one. And then you begin to take the skin off it, and inside it is a lovely white bit, very good for you, very wholesome, very nourishing, slow-released energy, It'll keep you going most of the morning or the evening and you can eat it and it'll do you good. 
So the disciples here are hungry. And because they're hungry, they lift the grain. And they do exactly what they would do with a banana. They pluck it, they strip it, and they eat it. What have they done wrong? Nothing. In the eyes of the commandment, but in the eyes of the Pharisees, they have done a lot wrong. Because the Pharisees had Sabbath restrictions forbidding work on the Sabbath. The scribes had decided that in order to prevent someone unwittingly breaking the law, like good lawyers, they would define what the law was. They would write down what law you can do, what work you can do on the Sabbath. They had 39 categories of work, and some of those had subclauses. And forbidden activities included reaping, winnowing and threshing, and cooking. So they're watching the disciples, and the disciples pluck the grain. And they're breaking this sub-law that says that work on the Sabbath day is to be reaping. By reaching out their hands and plucking the ears of corn, by taking a bunch of bananas and plucking off a banana, that's working. You've sinned. And threshing. They broke that law too. On a threshing floor, the, 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 the grain would be separated from the husk. And the grain would be left and the husk would be blown away. And the grain would then be ready for use. Now they didn't go to a threshing floor. They simply stripped the grain in their hands. Depending on what kind of crop it was. They could strip it just by rolling it like that. Or they could pull down the outside of the corn to get into it. Just like you would with the skin of a banana. And then they ate it. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, with their myriad of tiny little laws, that was cooking a meal. That whole process of plucking and stripping and putting it in your mouth, those multiple tasks constituted cooking a meal on the Sabbath. Apparently the cooking of a meal doesn't actually require heat. And yet the real issue here was that the disciples were hungry. And they were lifting food, and they were stripping it of its skin, and they were putting it into their mouths. And if that's work, then we've got to stop eating bananas on the Lord's day. But then Jesus never broke the Sabbath law. But he had no problem breaking the restrictions that were put in place by men. And that's what was happening here. So the false accusation of illegality has been laid. Your disciples have worked on the Sabbath. They have broken the law. Now Jesus is going to declare them to be blameless in this respect. But in order to do that, he calls forth witnesses from the Old Testament scripture. He directs them straight to the Old Testament. And he brings three witnesses. The first witness he brings is David. And so look here at verse 3. He said to them, Have ye not read what David did when he was unhungered 
and how they that were with him, how they entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Do you remember what had happened? David had been anointed king of Israel. Saul wasn't too pleased. Saul wanted rid of David, and David was in the out, was out of Jerusalem with his young men, with his group of uh, his entourage, his group of defenders. But they were hungry; they'd be hiding out, and they were starving. And they came to the town where Abimelech the priest stood in the house of the Lord. It was the tent of meeting, the tent of worship. And inside that tent was the showbread. It was two rows, two, two rows of six loaves, twelve loaves altogether, one for each tribe of Israel. The idea was that every week new bread would be brought forth and they'd be placed in the house of the Lord as an indication that it was the Lord who provides the grain for our daily bread. And that bread would remain there for the week and eventually at the end of another week it would be replaced by another 12 loaves and those old stale loaves if you like were then given to the priests to sustain them it's from the book of Leviticus chapter 24 it says this and I shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenth deals shall be in one cake. And I shall set them up in two rows, six in a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. And I shall put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant, and it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire for a perpetual statute. David was hungry. And he'd been anointed king of Israel, and Saul was pursuing him, and his necessity superseded the Sabbath rules. For the law is given for man. The Sabbath is given for man. The Sabbath is given to bless people, not to starve them. And hadn't the Pharisees read this story, says Jesus, have you not read Have you not read about David, how David came to Nob, to Abimelech the priest, how he took the showbread and how he ate it? David was breaking the law in order to survive. It's an act of necessity. And then he calls forth Moses. David has given his testimony. Step forth, Moses, in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law, the law of Moses, how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? If we're strictly talking about work, then the very people who profane the Sabbath most would be the priests. 
Think of the work that goes into the worship of the temple and the tent and the tabernacle. Think of how the priests working on the Sabbath day, they actually desecrated the day. They profaned the day. Like some ministers. There are some ministers, I'm told, who do nothing all week. I wouldn't know. They only work one day a week and that's on the Lord's day and when they come they work and they're paid for it and they're paid handsomely. Yet the work of the priests in the tabernacle on the Sabbath is God's work. It's in God's service. It's facilitating the worship of God. And because of that, says Jesus here, they are blameless. They are without blame. It's an act of piety, an act of worship. And then the third witness is called. And the third witness is Hosea. And in verse 7, Jesus says to the Pharisees, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Ye would not have condemned the guiltless. He's talking about the way that they had sought to condemn men who were simply trying to feed themselves. He's quoting from Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6. Where Hosea writes, I have desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What these Pharisees had forgotten, of course, was that true religion is not just a keeping of laws. It's not just a legalistic outward religion. Much more than that. It's much more preferable to have a personal knowledge of God to be merciful to others as God in Christ has been merciful to us. In his commentary in this passage James Montgomery Boyce compares this passage with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where the apostle expresses the thought that even though he would speak outwardly with the tongues of men and of angels and yet have no love within he has become little more than a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal that's what the pharisees were why did the pharisees not see that the disciples of jesus were hungry why did they not have mercy these three great witnesses. The witness of David, an act of necessity. The witness of Moses, an act of piety. The witness of Hosea, an act of mercy. These three great witness statements. The Old Testament law is clear. The Sabbath day, we do no work. But there are important exemptions. Jesus has brought them forth. And so we have here the accusation laid, the charge put. We have the witnesses called to give testimony, to give account to the true meaning of the law. And finally, we have the verdict. As Jesus brings before the Pharisees words that will infuriate them, and yet will point to him and vindicate him 
as the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. Look for a wee moment at these two verses. Look at verse 6. But this I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. And look at verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. These were the Pharisees' two great institutions. If there were two things that they held dear, it was the temple and the Sabbath day. That's the height of their piety. That's the essence of the Pharisaical religion, the keeping of the law and the maintenance of the temple. And so Jesus points in verse 6 to one who has come, who is greater even than the temple is himself. One to whom all the Old Testament sacrifices all pointed. The Pharisees looked upon the temple as the greatest building in the whole world. They rested their hope on the temple. It would never be moved. It stood four square. It would never be defeated. Back in the days of Jeremiah, they had cried out, Oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, when they claimed that the place where God dwelt could never be defeated. When it was raised during the exile, they rebuilt it, and now it's standing proud, and they're proud of it. Everything revolves around the temple. Jesus says, a greater than the temple has come. He fulfilled in his person and in his life and in his sacrifice the entire Old Testament system of worship. And he fulfilled the law. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Paul later wrote about this in Galatians. He argues that the whole point of the law is to make us realize that we can never keep it so that we flee to Christ and cast ourselves upon him for mercy and for forgiveness. He says, and Paul says in Galatians, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Jesus, in this verdict, undermines their understanding of the Old Testament law. He says this on many occasions. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Summed up in Christ. Now you can see why that would make the scribes, the lawyers, the Pharisees angry. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, if he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, it all pointed to him. The whole of the Old Testament is fulfilled in the Messiah. Then Jesus is saying to them, I am the true God. I am God incarnate in human flesh. So he vindicates his disciples. He says that they are blameless. They did not break the law. 
For the law according the law regarding the Sabbath day was given to Israel to make them turn from their labors, from their works, and rest in the Lord. And there on that day he offers himself as the one who can truly give us rest. Who just a few verses before, in chapter 11, has said to Israel, come on to me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden under the burden of the broken law, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy. Oh, those Pharisees with their minute laws and their works-based religion and their legalistic faith, they put a heavy burden on men and women. Jesus says, my burden is light. Come to me. Everything points to Christ. A wee word of caution. Remember what we learned at the very beginning of all of this. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He kept it. In this passage, we're not saying that Jesus broke the Sabbath law. He simply put the law into perspective for people who had added man-made religion to it. J.C. Ryle writes here, Let us beware that we are never tempted to take low views of the sanctity of the Christian Sabbath. Let us take care that we do not make our gracious Lord's teaching an excuse for Sabbath profamation. Let us not abuse the liberty which he has so clearly marked out for us and present that we do things on the Sabbath from necessity or mercy, which in reality we do for our own selfish gratification. Jesus never broke the Sabbath. But he certainly did bring the message that day to those scribes and Pharisees and those who labored under their burden that he was the true fulfillment of Israel's whole accumulated redemptive history. And in him and him alone, they would find rest for their souls. 